Kia ora. I'm Damien Venuto. It's October 16th and this is The Front Page, a daily podcast presented by the New Zealand Herald. Doctors failing to catch blood clots. Cancer being missed. Medicine given to patients who were allergic to it. Surgical equipment left inside patients. We trust our lives to medical professionals to find out what's wrong with us and help us get better. But sometimes, the mistakes of medical staff can lead to dire consequences. Thankfully, processes are in place to hold doctors, nurses and other staff accountable when things go wrong and hopefully prevent mistakes from happening again. We're aware of many of these stories thanks to the Open Justice Project, which has been reporting on decisions made by the Health Practitioners Disciplinary Tribunal and the Health and Disability Commissioner. Today, on the front page, Open Justice Deputy Editor Natalie Akuri joins us to discuss what those organisations do and how they can help you if your medical treatment causes you more harm than good. Natalie, what have been some of the most shocking cases you've covered in the medical realm while working with Open Justice? Probably the most shocking case is the one of Hamilton doctor Naylan Arpana. Uh, He was the fetish ball gynecologist and he was working in private practice when he took a date that he had met on a sugar daddy's website back to his clinic. They had been out, he had plied her with alcohol and he performed an STI check on her solely for his own benefit before beginning a sexual relationship with her. That relationship was quite bizarre, seemed to be based on the plot of Fifty Shades of Grey. Now, this was a man in his 60s. He was also married at the time, still is. He was eventually found guilty of professional misconduct for blurring personal and professional boundaries uh, by the Health Practitioners Disciplinary Tribunal. And that was after a sexual assault service doctor complained to the medical council. Can you explain what the Health Practitioners Tribunal does? This is a tribunal that hears and determines disciplinary charges against medical professionals. So they could be doctors, nurses, dentists, midwives, and so on. It's a panel made up of a chairperson who's a lawyer. There's medical practitioners in the same field as the person facing charges. So it's like their peers, and then there's one layperson, and it operates in a quasi-judicial style. So the penalties can actually be really serious, like being suspended or struck off, and it convenes after a professional conduct committee determines that there is a charge to answer. So, for example, if a complaint is made about a doctor to the medical council, the council will appoint that PCC to investigate, That committee then determines there's a case to answer. They lay a disciplinary charge and it goes to the tribunal. Can you give us some examples of the types of cases that they look at? It usually comes down to patient care, patient rights, medical mishaps, although no one ever likes to admit those, and misconduct by health practitioners. So I recently covered a decision of the tribunal involving an emergency department doctor who drove drunk on the wrong side of the road and crashed into an oncoming car and then fled the scene without checking for injury. He was suspended. Another example would be the case of a surgeon who was also the chief medical officer for a time in the public hospital where he was working and he was prescribing the opioid drug tramadol to his family, but actually using it himself. So the implications were that he could have been high while performing surgeries, although that was actually never suggested in the tribunal's decision. There was another quite shocking case that I covered, Auckland doctor Chris Partridge, who gave testosterone and steroids 
to a drug-seeking patient who actually already had a brain injury from abusing drugs. So there were all sorts of red flags there for that doctor. And he had form for this kind of conduct. He'd been found guilty before. He was ultimately suspended, and he's now working in a rest home as a doctor because his suspension has lapsed. But what really astounded me on that one is that the professional conduct committee in that case, and actually no one, made a complaint to police. So there was no investigation into what he actually did with the hundreds of restricted growth hormones and performance-enhancing drugs that he had imported into New Zealand. Now, how is that tribunal different from the Health and Disability Commissioner? Yeah, there is quite a difference. The HDC was set up as a patient health watchdog in 1994. That was following quite big health reforms at the time. And it was also off the back of the 1988 Cartwright inquiry into the unfortunate experiment at National Women's Hospital in Auckland. I don't know if you've heard of that, but the experiment was experiment in inverted commas was undertaken by a gynecologist over two decades where he allowed women patients to develop invasive cervical cancer without knowing and some died. I refuse to use that word closure. There's no such thing. No such thing. We learn to live with stuff, that's all. It highlighted the need for patient rights and legislative change gave rise to the Health and Disability Commissioner Act. So anyone can complain to the HDC or its offshoot, the advocacy service, about patient care that they or their family has received. Each week, the HDC, which is a former coroner, Morag McDowell, either she or one of her deputies will release decisions of these years-long investigations where healthcare providers, which can be an agency like a hospital or a rest home, as well as individuals like doctors and nurses, have breached the code of patient rights. The decisions are always anonymised and the most damning outcome for a provider or practitioner is a referral to the Director of Proceedings, which is actually not common. Most are actually simply just ordered to apologise and undertake work to prevent the error or poor care happening again. The HDC also has an education component and it can initiate its own investigations into any area where there may be repeated health harm. And in April this year, the HDC released a scathing investigation report into the former Southern DHB's cancer care. But that one was actually sparked by a complaint from the wife of Blair Vining. Blair was diagnosed with bowel cancer and given eight weeks to live, but told he would have to wait 12 weeks to see a specialist. So cases that go through the HDC can end up in front of the tribunal, or if a breach is found and it's not referred to the Director of Proceedings, then the complainant can actually take it to the Human Rights Review Tribunal. We see reports of these cases regularly, but how common is it that cases are referred to either of these disciplinary measures that you've mentioned now? Yeah, that's quite hard to answer. But what I do know is that it can take upwards of three years to complete an HDC investigation. And they have come under heavy criticism in recent years because it came to light that they were only investigating 4% of complaints. The rest were being closed uh, or referred back to the relevant professional body or after an initial assessment, they were ended with a no further action. But last year, the HDC received 
almost 3,500 complaints and its advocacy service received almost 3,000 complaints. And it's actually now doubled the amount of complaints it's investigating to 8%. So that's quite an improvement, but still not great. Unlike the ACC, though, there's no right of appeal to an HDC finding. So if a patient is not satisfied with the outcome, the only avenue to appeal is through the ombudsman or the high court, which would be really expensive. And that is only to determine that the process was fair and legal. So it would never change the outcome. So a surgical mesh patient that I had some dealings with called Renata Shute. She organised a petition that went to the Health Select Committee in 2021 for the right to appeal. That committee heard that the complaint system was not working as it was intended and that it was clear some complainants had been denied access to justice in situations where there appeared to have been clear breaches of the code. There are what's called closed file reviews, but these are quite rare and not independent and the HDC does not keep statistics on the outcomes as far as I'm aware. The HDC is currently reviewing its act, its code and its standard operating proceedings and these will be publicly consulted in March uh, with recommendations to the Minister of Health next December. So that should be interesting. The front page is the New Zealand Herald's daily news podcast covering stories from across Aotearoa. Follow us on iHeartRadio or wherever you get your podcasts. And for more news from NZME's Wellington, Christchurch and regional news networks, head to nzherald.co.nz. What sorts of punishments are generally handed down in these cases? I mean, do we ever see cases of doctors or nurses losing their licences? Yes, definitely. Although it's my understanding that there is some research that shows that nurses are actually penalised at greater and higher rates than doctors. I haven't got hold of that research yet, but that's probably quite controversial if it's true. And if it is true, it's possibly because doctors through their indemnity insurance have free access to some of New Zealand's best medical lawyers. There are other penalties as well. They include suspension, censure, monitoring so when they come back to work they have to be monitored fines and paying costs for the investigation and the hearing which these days can actually run into six figures they're pretty expensive exercises your team at open justice recently reported on the case of a woman who had severe pain after giving birth via cesarean but it took 18 months for doctors to realize that a piece of surgical equipment the size of a dinner plate had been left inside of her How common is it for equipment to be left behind in patients? I mean, this is the horror story that we're all afraid of becoming a reality for us. So how common is that? I don't really know. I haven't reported that very often. And I would say that it's probably quite uncommon and therefore actually a massive mistake and an inexcusable mistake, really. There have also been stories of GPs and doctors missing symptoms, misreading results or failing to take complaints seriously. Is that a little bit more common than those cases of surgical equipment being left behind? In terms of actual mishaps, I think they are more common because they are quite often reported by the HDC. But I actually think that this is an indictment on our health system and medical practitioners who are absolutely stretched beyond their limits. 
Wellington Hospital's Women's Health Service is under so much pressure it has told GPs to stop referring patients unless they suspect cancer or something equally urgent. Specialists and family doctors say it's becoming common practice across many departments as hospital services become increasingly overwhelmed. What's the most common reason that doctors give for making these kinds of mistakes? Each case is quite specific, but I do sometimes see doctors and nurses saying that they were busy on the ward that day, there was a staff shortage, there was a bed shortage, there was a junior doctor who wasn't being supervised properly, or there was equipment failure, there were poor processes in general, or there was a systemic culture problem, there was bullying. So there's all sorts of scenarios that can lead to what they call the Swiss cheese model of human error in healthcare. And that's the series of minor and, at the time, unremarkable mistakes that together break down the defences of any system so that disaster ensues. Is there any work happening behind the scenes in terms of improving the processes to create some safeguards and ensure that these problems don't persist? The only time that that would happen, I think, other than in each individual case, is when the HGC decides to take a wider view of health harm that may be happening in a certain area, either of health or region. And so they will initiate an investigation and they will look into the reasons that these things are happening and then they will report back. And that's very similar to what happened with Blair Vining when his wife complained actually on behalf of the whole region about the poor cancer services that they were receiving in the southern DHB area. In terms of each individual case, the recommendations are made if a breach is found. Whenever we do publish these stories on the Herald site, there's always a lot of interest and generally shock at how this happens. Is there any concern from your perspective over how these stories could lead to a lack of trust between patients and doctors? Or is it more important that patients know their rights and that sometimes doctors aren't always right? It's not really my concern as a member of the media, but it's more the concern of professional bodies for medical practitioners. In my opinion, the media has a role to play in alerting people to their rights reporting the mistakes that have been made and what the changes were or what was recommended or made to prevent those errors arising again. So although, for example, doctor-patient trust is really important, I kind of think at what point does a patient question a doctor or another medical professional? At what point does blind faith actually not serve your own best interests as a patient? Thanks for joining us, Natalie. That's it for this episode of The Front Page. You can read more about today's stories and extensive news coverage at nzherald.co.nz. The Front Page is produced by Sean D. Wilson with executive producer Ethan Sills. I'm Damien Venuto. You can follow The Front Page on iHeartRadio or wherever you get your podcasts. And tune in tomorrow for another look behind the headlines.